Welcome to Totally Pretentious, a podcast about great movies. I'm David. And I'm Sean. And today we are going to be talking about uh, The Swimmer from 1968. Uh, but first, maybe we might catch up for a bit. I was just telling Sean off-air that I've joined the rest of uh, the world by finally seeing Dread. <laughs> That's good, David, because you really needed to see it. So uh, once I uh, add John Carter to that list, I'll finally caught up, maybe. <laughs> You've not seen John Carter either? No, I haven't seen that either. Oh, man, that movie's so underrated. And so is Dread. I mean, it's not underrated so much as uh, it didn't get as much love when it was in theaters. Even though I think almost everybody who's seen it basically loves it. Um, because I did, And I don't know, David, maybe you have a similar experience, but when I saw that Dread... It felt like this is Dread. Oh, completely, yes. I mean, I had the misfortune of seeing uh, Judge Dread in the theaters. <clears throat> oh, you uh, poor bastard. Yeah. Uh, I wish I had seen this one in the theaters. Particularly, This is one of the few times I've seen a film you know, belatedly and seen, oh, I, I thought I really should have seen this in 3D. Because I could see all sorts of scenes that were clearly meant to... to take advantage of the uh, of that perspective so I do regret that that's an interesting uh, interesting thing to think about for for dread I hadn't really you're right though because there are some of those really long all the slow-mo stuff yeah and yeah. the slow-mo stuff which could have been very interesting I guess in 3d I'm not a big fan of 3d myself um, I often find that it it doesn't add enough to the experience for me to warrant the extra five bucks. <laughs> no, I, um, I, I, I'm not a fan either, uh, particularly since it, um, I, I mean, I was reading an article which pointed out that if the story of a film is interesting, uh, the brain filters out the 3D effect. Uh, so it really doesn't add anything, but there have been a few films where it does. Uh, Hugo was one. Uh, there's a wonderful moment when... Um, um, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's character is talking about uh, sort of, uh, not liking the cut of a jib, the, his visage, and so on and so forth. Uh, all these uh, different synonyms for face. And as he's speaking, his face is looming closer and closer and closer. And in 3D, it, it's going over the audience, and it's it's an it's an extraordinarily funny and wonderful use of the process. Like absolutely justifying Scorsese's uh, use of the process there. Um, and, uh, and I was in the slow-mo scenes in Dread, I was thinking, man, I wish I was seeing this in 3D. Uh, but most of the time, unfortunately, now it's unavoidable. Uh, which is one reason why when, um, uh, my friend and I realized that we were going to have to see Fury Road in 3D, that we figured, oh, what the heck, let's see it, uh, in, uh, going with the D-Box experience too. And just went, we just went full William Castle, uh, and had all, all the bells and whistles. And granted, uh, the D-Box, uh, experience was like paying eight extra bucks to have somebody kick the back of your chair for two hours. It was still, uh, interesting. Yeah, I, I, I think the only interesting experience I had in 3D was seeing, uh, I think it was How to Train Your Dragon. And it, it's a moment when there, I can't remember if it's snow or it's ashes. And if it looks, when you, when you see it, all the, the snowy bits are like falling around you, mm -hmm. which is the first time I've had a 3D movie where I actually had that experience. Like I felt like I could reach out and grab something, which doesn't usually happen. I mean, Mad Max, the 3D experience, it was fine. Uh, but I didn't feel, it, it just it I saw it in regular you know normal everyday 2d and it felt fine just as that too it was just as enjoyable I feel well and that's how it was shot right and that's Miller's preferred form the 3d was in, was it's another post-production conversion yeah it I I really dislike this I mean because it feels very much like like 3d is the Hollywood gimmick now we're like well let's just turn a movie that wasn't meant to be 3d into 3d rather than saying we're gonna make a movie that's intended from the start to be a 3d movie yeah. and we're gonna write it in a way that optimizes the 3d experience uh, so many films don't feel like that they just feel like we're doing 3d because like we can get an extra five bucks out of this yeah. um, and I'm just I for me I just don't want to do that I don't want to spend that money just to get some some like bits sort of coming out of the screen and like some weird depth issues when i mean and sometimes like when i saw mad max I, it actually affected the color 
Yeah, that happens a lot too. That's why if if I have to see a 3D film, I try to see it in IMAX, where at least I know it will be bright enough. Um, oh, I didn't really. Uh, yeah, but a lot of the time, they, they that's why you're seeing the effect in the color because it uh, it's dimmer than it should be. Uh, so the I mean, the films that were meant to be in 3D, like Hugo, like Avatar, um, like, like Coraline, um, there you know I can see the benefit um, of the uh, that that the, the 3D actually is adding to the experience, and I think that would have been uh, that certainly felt like it would have been the case in Dread. It's one of those instances where I felt like ah I am missing something here um, by seeing it in this this particular way. As opposed to Mad Max, um, which, but half the time now, or actually most of the time, if you want to see a 2D film, that means catching it at some odd hour, because uh, they'll only show it twice a day at two in the afternoon during the week or something like that. The one other thing that I was going to say about Dread is that I, I certainly enjoyed it very much, uh, but I, I do feel a bit for it because it does suffer from the unfortunate coincidence of having a plot that so closely resembles that of the Raid Redemption, uh, which came out, you know, just a was I think it was just a few months beforehand, right? They the, think the, the films were in production around the same time. It does seem to have been a coincidence, not one influencing the other, uh, but they the fact remains that they're very similar stories and. The raid has the the most transcendent, transcendentally amazing action scenes. Uh, that it's the difference between watching a film that's a lot of fun and a movie that leaves your jaw on the ground. And the movie that's a lot of fun is going to suffer in comparison. Um, so I think it it certainly uh, I think Dread is one of those films that if you haven't seen the raid, stands up really well. Uh, but if you have seen the raid, uh, it, it it suffers somewhat. And you really should see the raid if you haven't seen it. Well, that's one I definitely need to see. Um, I, I one thing I'll just say about Dread is that uh, you know you mentioned having seen in theaters Judge Dread with Stallone, who yes. never really felt like uh, Judge Dread. He always kind of just felt like Rambo in space. Um, well, he took the helmet off after the, the opening scene, as I recall. Yeah, which you also don't yeah. do, yeah. Uh, I always felt like Carl Urban, as soon as you saw that scowl on his face, is he's so perfect as the character. Like, he just never yes. breaks character. He's really brilliant. And I think it's really sad that we are probably never going to see a sequel film, even though, mm-hmm. to be totally honest, it deserves it, because Dread is one of the the best films of its type. I think we've we've seen in recent years, um, and it's unfortunate that we won't ever see the sequel because it's, it, there's just financially it's never going to happen unless somebody's going to spend like twenty five million on a uh, Indiegogo campaign or something. Yeah, so, no, that is that is too bad. It is really because it's. We, I want to see Carl Urban as Dread some more. Damn it, he's too good. But in any case, I, I, yeah, I thought they had a great Judge Anderson as well. So. Um. Uh, but anyway, I guess we will we'll never find out. We will never find out. Uh, also happened to star Lena Headey and um, the guy from uh, uh, Remember the Titans, whose name I can never remember. But anyways, yeah. yeah. But um, uh, so stuff I was watching, and then we'll we'll get on talking about the swimmer. Uh, I started my Around the World tour, so I've been watching Abel Ferreira's various films. I've gotten through the first three. I'm almost done with Fear City. Um, had I've already reviewed one of them. I, I reviewed uh, Driller Killer, um, which I had, you know, I thought was interesting, but uh, was a very flawed film. And I'm sure David, you you would agree, it's it's a fair yeah, it, it's well, it's a very raw, uh, you know, first proper work. Uh, it feels kind it. of thing. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I honestly, at this moment, I my favorite of his films is actually Miss Forty Five, which is drastically superior directorially wise uh, compared to. Uh, Driller Killer, and I is even better than for me than Fear City, which Fear City is fine. It's dealing with very similar themes of uh, uh, assaults on women. And this, in the case of Fear City, it's about uh, uh, attacks on um, on strippers and sort of that again dealing with the underbelly culture, as it were. Uh, but Miss Forty Five has one of the most brilliant ending scenes 
uh, for it, for just analysis. I mean, you see Miss Forty Five, yeah? Uh, only the last portion of it, so it's one that I need to, and a long time ago. So I do need to sit down and and uh, watch it. But I can I can well believe it. Um, and uh, so I'll be interested to see what you think of uh, when you get to sort of things like. Um, <laughs> Uh, King of New York and uh, Bad Lieutenant. <laughs> that one in particular. Uh, I mean, that was the one I think that probably uh, gave him the biggest uh, profile as far as the theatrical release is concerned, right? Because most of the other his other stuff has uh, been kind of was wound up going direct to video or um, having very limited release. But Bad Lieutenant had a very, you know, it was everywhere, mm. uh, and um, it was. Um, yeah, it's well. Anyway, it's certainly a brave performance by Harvey Keitel. Interesting. Okay, I'll, I'll I do like Harvey Keitel quite a lot, so that'll be interesting to get to to that point. Um, I was I was really glad to learn that uh, that Tom Berenger is in Fear City, <laughs> who, uh, to be frank, uh, the only film I can really recall being Tom Berenger heavy was uh, Sniper and uh, the uh, the I, I still think exceptional film Platoon where he actually plays the villain. Uh, in this case, he's... In Fear City, he plays not so much villain, but not really good guy. He's kind of middle... He's, he's a criminal, essentially. Sort of. I don't know, it's hard to describe. But in any case. Um, but yeah, so I'll have more stuff to say about Abel Ferreira. I'll probably write an essay talking about all of his work, or at least the first half of his work, once I get to that point. So I'm not going to review every film when I'm doing the Around the World thing. I'm just kind of picking and choosing but i'm definitely writing a review of miss 45 which uh i love but but the subject matter is not going to be for everybody uh given that it does involve uh it's essentially a rape revenge film uh although i will be honest i feel like it deal dealt with it deals with uh the consequences of rape on its female protagonist or mute female protagonist who's mute before the rape occurs by the way she's just mute um it deals with the repercussions of that far better than other rape revenge fantasies, including one which we didn't review for Torture Cinema on Skiffy and Fandy, but which was asked for us to do. And when I watched it, I couldn't watch it. Uh, and I can't remember it was like the, the nail gun killer or something like that. Um, the toolbox murders? No, I was like, it's really, it's like a nail, like nail gun killer. It's one of those oh. like B movie gore shock fest kind of, slasher fix okay. basically involving a guy who or someone going around trying to kill people with a nail gun after uh, oh. a very graphic rape occurs at the beginning of the film but that one to me felt like it it wasn't dealing with the subject matter seriously it was just sort of we're now having this violence festival uh in response to rape rather than having a character who in miss 45 is raped twice and then actually suffers psychological effects as a result of that. We see that occur on screen numerous times as she descends into what will eventually be her revenge. But I think her revenge is much more fascinating because of the reasons why she commits her revenge. And as you said, David, when you've seen that ending scene, um, that scene is just incredible because of who it is that stabs her in the back. Literally. It's a woman stabbing yeah. her in the back as she's shooting only the men in the room. She's gone to this party and has th has taken the the task of basically murdering every man there because she's identified men as people as bad people people who need to be stopped because every man she meets is trying to take advantage of her as a mute woman who is uh, fair to say is as a model is attractive um, and I I love that ending scene and I think that film is far better than most that deal with this subject matter but that's all I'm gonna say. Well yeah, well, certainly. I mean, it's, it tends to be a very dubious subgenre in the first place. Uh, so, uh, and you know, um, you know, to, calling it controversial, the, the the films that come out of it controversial is to put it mildly. Uh, but uh, but I'll, I'll mention that though in um, uh, in conjunction with that, uh, that Carol Clover's um, uh, work on the subject is well worth reading. Uh, her focus is particularly I spit on your grave, but uh, she does she does tackle these particular this particular subgenre films um, quite rigorously in um, uh, well it, it might have been published as a separate essay, but uh, in book form it's in her um, uh, actually quite groundbreaking book uh, men women and uh, men women and chainsaws gender in the modern horror film. 
Oh, excellent. I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes for folks if they would like to check it out. Which is definitely something to read. Well, shall we get to talking about The Swimmer? All right. So this is from 1968. Um, it is was well was directed by um, Frank Perry, but um, he was replaced after um, uh, the the initial cut. Um, Sidney Pollock uh, came in and uh, shot a number of other scenes. Um, and uh, the it's based on a short story by John Cheever, which. Uh, it's a story that at first it sounds like it feels like a, a kind of John Updike uh, tale um, of modern suburbia, but as you go along, you start to realize, well, wait a minute, this is kind of weird, and uh, that is the the effect in, in the film as well. So what we have is Burt Lancaster showing up uh, one sunny day at a, a friend's swimming pool and deciding that he's going to make his way back to his house by sw- swimming there, going through uh, the, the swimming pools of all the neighbors that is, they link together um, until he finally gets back to his place. And uh, as his epic journey uh, across the Lucinda River, as he calls it, uh, begins, uh, at first everyone is very happy to see him, but bit by bit things get darker and more and more strange. And I, uh, I'll just mention uh, that Eleanor Perry's script does an incredible job of being both faithful to the short story and expanding on it and, and keeping uh, it, its themes, which I guess we'll, we'll want to get into. Yeah, and and I did want to talk about a little bit of the the history of the film because I this this film has had a rough life <laughs> to say the Yeah, least. it was not well received initially. No, no, it wasn't well received. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, Frank Perry, the the Perrys as as a whole, uh, eventually did leave the production, and this was after shooting the film, and then the studios deciding they wanted uh, the scene with uh, Ned, played by Burt Lancaster, his ex-lover, his mistress, his ex-mistress, they wanted that reshot, Um, and I have two conflicting accounts that I found uh, in two of the the books on Burt Lancaster that I, I picked up, it suggests that they left of their own accord, that they basically left in protest, they withdrew, they said, F you, we're gone. Uh, in the documentary on the swimmer called the story of the swimmer, I believe is the, the name it's indicated that they were fired, which is drastically different than we leave because we disagree and you can go to hell. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, it's hard to say what is more true, although it is entirely possible given that both of the Burt Lancaster books that I read indicate that Lancaster and the Perry's didn't necessarily get along and that Lancaster maybe was a bit of cantankerous on the uh, on the set or maybe became a little too embedded in Ned uh, and was a little bit of a pill um, that it's possible that maybe they were actually fired and it is interesting too that Lancaster did spend $10,000 of his own money to finish production uh, even though uh, uh, he he claims that he was uh, promised by Spiegel uh, of uh, I forget which studio now but uh promised by him that that the film would be uh, uh, you know appropriately looked over but apparently Lancaster is really upset that uh, Spiegel was off at like the Cannes Film Festival for another film while he was like languishing trying to finish this film so there's a lot of interesting elements I think to how this film ended up as it is and uh, there's another interesting fact which is that I believe Frank Perry has stated somewhere that uh, 50% of this film is not his yeah, I um, I saw that uh, too, which makes it astonishing. I think that the film feels like such a coherent whole. Uh, I uh, I would never have uh, known that uh, this is uh, we, this is the work of two directors and all the the, the, the conflict in, in the background. Uh, as episodic as it is, which is also true to the story, uh, it it feels like a very unified, forceful motion picture. It does for the most part. I, I I do feel like you can, if you're paying attention to some of the, the cuts to different scenes, that there is some jerkiness to how things are being put together, which maybe is more the the editing rather than the direction per se. Um, but I think you're right that overall the film does feel very coherent. And once you realize what's happening, you can kind of see the underlying uh, 
almost, I think one reviewer almost described this film as Twilight Zone-ish. And I think yeah. probably about halfway or two-thirds of the way in, that becomes very clear that we're starting to deal with that. Um, and I think that... So we might want to put a spoiler wall up at this point. Uh, yeah. In, in case uh, people haven't seen this film. Uh, but I think um, even if we've gone and spoiled things for you... Uh, the, the film becomes stronger on a second viewing once you realize where it's going. Yeah, you start to see the clues a bit more. Um, and it, it is interesting that Lancaster's character of Ned, uh, for me, began as a very sympathetic figure. I mean, Lancaster does really good right from the start. He's almost euphoric. And when he talks about, you know, like, look at how beautiful the day is. Oh, look at that water. Look at those clouds. It's just so beautiful. What a day. Right? He's very euphoric. He's got this beautiful mm -hmm. smile on. And in the very opening scenes, he looks younger than everyone around him. And I believe he was in his 50s when this film was made or somewhere in that vicinity. He was a pretty old man. Yeah, I think he was closing in on. Uh, so uh, on, the, I saw one thing referring to him as closing in on. Uh, oh yeah, he. Well, let's see. Uh, Nineteen thirteen. So he was fifty-five. He doesn't look it. No. Not at all. No, though. It, what, what's though? I think it, testament to his performance is, uh, and we should add. Uh, I mean, Lancaster spends the entire film in his bathing suit. Yes, of which uh, there were like twelve and, of them on set, so he kept cycling through different bathing suits every day. <laughs> I can well believe it, uh, and as as Adonis like as he you know um, in in a kind of you know as a middle aged Adonis as he is in the uh, the opening scene, by the end of the film he seems to have aged decades. Yes, he he seems withered. Um, it's as if his his arms and legs are th and chest are thinner and more and or his chest chest more sunken um, than uh, at the beginning of the film. It's it's an extraordinary physical performance uh, that that he turns in. Yeah, and I think Lancaster's performance in particular is really noteworthy here. Uh, he he pulls off each of the different versions of Ned remarkably well, and you believe it. Um, I mean, you're right. When he gets to the end, he feels like an old man, very much like that. Even though technically nothing has changed about him, in the in the sense that like they, they didn't put like old man makeup on him. He's not wearing old man clothes. He's the same, basically the same man. But his performance, I mean, he's shaking. He's he's he, earlier on in the film, he talks about getting cold, and we just think, oh, maybe he's just getting cold. Till we realize what it is is it's his his aging, and he he starts to stoop. Um, he there are moments even when the film kind of shows him crouching and it seems like he's getting that kind of old man belly going on. Even yeah. though in the beginning of the film he's in not quite peak physical condition, but in remarkably good physical condition. I mean, you know, he's no Sandow or anything, but uh, but by the end he's he's got that stoop. Uh, he feels like he's gray. He feels old. Yeah. Um, and there's that moment when he's banging on the door, right, to the house, which he, we, he, we realize, uh, by a shot where we get through the window and it kind of like fades into the, the, we see that it's been empty for years as just this pile of stuff in the middle of the room. Yeah. Right, which through a broken window, the, uh, the 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 tennis court instead is sagging. Uh, vegetation is overgrown everywhere. It's almost like he's banging on the door of a haunted house. It is, and what's fascinating is is we hear him banging, and when we go inside, you hear him like groaning. Yeah, yeah, he's wailing and moaning like a ghost, like a ghost, but also like a senile old man, a man who's lost faculty in fact he doesn't say anything in that final scene he just crumples at no. the door it's almost um i mean if, if this were a much older if this were a film made today i mean the connections would be like here is a man who's like got alzheimer's or some terrible disease where he doesn't know where he is and he's lost his ability to engage with the world he's just banging and wailing in these like just this cathartic release of fear and anger and emotion and he and he doesn't know there's no function to it beyond merely just releasing um that's how i i read that final scene and it is i think the film overall is definitely dealing with the notion of youth and aging um well somewhat um i i, I think i would agree that there's this there's this uh, inability to connect this loss of connection to the world but um i think what what we're seeing uh, in Ned's character is this. Um, I mean, he's the ultimate product of um, the of the most privileged form of patriarchal capitalism. He's a wasp. 
right? Yeah, uh, a, a rich one at the top of the pyramid, right? And, I mean, he is privilege embodied, uh, or at least the uh, it, it, representing that in the system. But now we discover by the end that he has failed, right? The, syst- uh, the system has rejected him. And so what we see is the total breakdown of the human, of the human being unable to deal with this loss of privilege. Uh, and you know, as, as we go through the film, and we, see, I mean, we see him still thinking in terms of you know of, of behaving as this privileged being, uh, seeing everyone around him, women in particular, as um, me, you know, uh, essentially objects of his pleasure, um, but uh, and and unaware of the damage he is causing, right? And, and one of the things that the film is able to do that. Um, that at least be able to expand upon. Um, the, the short story is entirely from Ned's perspective. Uh, and the film is essentially a POV uh, from his perspective as well. But we do see what other people are thinking of him. Uh, and it becomes clear as we go along. And there's, for instance, that, that very telling moment when he uh, meets the, the, the chauffeur at one of the houses that he's getting to. And he's, uh, you know, oh, I thought you were the other guy. Um, and talks about, wow, this guy, he had such a great bass voice. And the, 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 the chauffeur looks at him and says, oh, a natural sense of rhythm, right? And biting every syllable. We can see that this man is livid, right? Uh, but, um, is, uh, but Ned just doesn't get it at all, right? Right. Um, and he he consistently doesn't get it. And when uh, he encounter has his first hostile encounter with uh, the uh, the woman who's um, I don't know. It's not clear whether it was her son or her husband. I, I suspect the latter, who was supposed to be a friend of Ned's and Fred never visited him in the hospital, and the man has died. Uh, and uh, she says, "What are you doing here?" And he says, "Well." You know, who gave you permission to be here? He says, well, I'm Ned Merrill, as if that explains everything. Of course I have I've, I have every right to be here because of who I am. Yeah. yeah. And and that's when we first get the first real crack in the, the illusion that um, the idea is maintained. But the the, the disconnect, one of the, 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 the ways in which that disconnect manifests itself is through this illusion that he creates, which the, uh, the stories that he tell are inconsistent. Uh, they vary from encounter to encounter. He says whatever makes him look best, and he clearly believes it. Um, even though we, we uh, his, the age of his daughters varies from house to house. Uh, and uh, but as we reach the end of the film, he is finally unable to maintain that illusion anymore. Reality cracks it apart. Uh, and uh, we have his complete disintegration by the house. Yeah, and, and it is... It, I- I do find the film very interesting uh, in the way in which it tears him down because I feel probably about midway through the film was the moment at which I started to lose sympathy for his character, uh, and and the reason for that was you know the, you know we have this initial moment he's he's at his friend's house he seems very nice and then he goes to this the woman's house and he has his first confrontation and we think like well maybe this is a fluke. You know, it's it's one maybe fault, and he feels really awful about it. We kind of feel sympathy for him because he's like, yeah, he screwed up. He didn't talk to this person. But then he continues on, and he, we start to realize how much of a, uh, how much of a womanizer he is as we get along, yeah. particularly in his relationship with Julie, who, which is really creepy. which is is really creepy. He starts by joking about like, oh, I'm going to hire you to be the babysitter. And then he somehow convinces her to go along on this journey with him, which is fine, I guess, you know, but then it becomes increasingly romantic. And for the first half of that relationship, I really thought that what we were getting was a romance. You know, she confesses she likes him. He's really flattered. He's like, or he, she did, right? She had a, when she was a teen, when she was younger, she had a, a crush on him. Right. Which she herself says is just, was childish. But I, I, I feel like those, those initial scenes are played off as, it is that, that initial childishness, but now we're, we're making something very adult here. Uh, and, um, it, it came off as though what we're having is, Two adults of very different ages now having a kind of a relationship, and it feels that way at first, and then it descends very much so into 
creepiness because Burt Lancaster's character, Ned, starts to impose upon her physically, right? He, it's moving away from, oh, I had this crush on you and all, oh, don't we look kind of cute together? He even introduces her at one of the parties, right? He's introducing her like, she's with me and it seems fine. And then we start to get to where it's clear the age difference is there. He injures himself, for example, while they're running around in the horse circle. Uh, rather, I think, a moment at which they're both demonstrating their, their youth. Him as a, as a wannabe youth, right? He's, he's wanting to maintain that youth, her, because she literally is youthful. Um, and then they go out into the woods and they're talking, and it slowly moves away from this is a kind of cutesy romantic idea to no, 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 Ned is overstepping his boundaries and she's deeply uncomfortable until she, in fact, runs away when he tries to kiss her, essentially. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I was relieved, and I mean, ironically, as it got... I mean, it, it, I think the the whole sequence uh, uh, or the section with Julie is, you know, is quite discomforting, and uh, and becomes you know dis- extremely disturbing once you know he's he's putting his hand on her her stomach, while still convincing himself that he is the quote nice guy. Um, but the I remember the the first time I saw that. Um, and I, I finding finding everything with with uh, uh, Julie feeling wrong, and uh, thinking, hoping that this wasn't being presented as a kind of romance, and then discovering, okay, no, it's not. Uh, it, we are supposed to see how inappropriate this is from the very beginning, uh, and the the romantic things are things. You know, it was a childhood crush that Julie has left behind. She's enjoying this adventure. Uh, but then when he starts to try to turn things into a reality, um, and of course we, we see again, just yeah, what a womanizer he is um, on top of the grotesque age difference between the two, um, that uh, the, the, it's almost a relief when she runs away. Well, certainly, okay, great, she's, she's gone away from this man, uh, but also it signals to us that the film knew all along just how wrong this was yeah yeah that's a sense that i think the film does many times that ned is oblivious to constantly i mean the scene you brought up when he he meets the chauffeur right and his reaction is oh you're steve and oh no you're not steve and and we see how uncomfortable that scene is and we get to the end he's like i don't know why i thought you were steve and it's like, well, but we know because the man is African-American and we're dealing with the 1960s, which still civil rights-y kind of moment. And we know exactly. Well, 1968. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot yeah, going on. We know then. exactly. And it, and it reveals so much of that, that obliviousness that Ned has. And it becomes, he becomes increasingly more oblivious as he goes along. Um, that obliviousness tells us so much about what kind of man he was and the world in which he came from that no longer exists for him. Um, it's fine in the beginning, but you know he he we we learn, for example, his his relationship, as it were, with Julie, right? We learn why he is so aggressive, and I think I would argue manipulative in those moments because when we get to the scene yeah. when he actually is with his ex mistress, um, we see the animosity, that hatred she really has for him, and he keeps trying to weasel his way back in constantly. We learn, of course, that he. You know, he manipulated her before and had used her um, and then dumped her, I guess, in an expensive restaurant, uh, being Ned. Uh, it, we learn so much about how how far out of reality he is that the culture is changing around him and Ned is not changing. And he's trying to continue to maintain it. Part of that is a youth thing. Part of that is a cultural thing. He just comes from a different time when you treated women differently. You treated people around you differently. Uh, I mean, the, the number of times he like touches women's feet, and or, yeah, yeah. or, or, or other body or other parts, body yeah. parts. Um, it, he he imposes his his himself on people constantly. Um, yeah, there's an assumed possession yeah. uh, that uh, comes with him, and the his manipulation also seems to be uh, uh, though part of that is his comes from his self delusion. In that, um, I mean, one of the things that we see in uh, the uh, the scene um, with uh, 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 I think it's, it's Janice Rule is playing um, uh, Julie Julie Hooper, right? Um, oh, sorry, Shirley Abbott. Shirley Abbott, his his, his ex lover. Uh, in in the scene with Shirley, uh, 
he's having trouble remembering when he met her for something, right? Uh, he says, well, no, it was this, and it was that. And he's describing things that clearly didn't happen. And she's starting to look at him and starting to realize that there's something actually really wrong with him. Uh, and I think one of the the, the telling moments, uh, at least where his self-delusion is um, articulated most explicitly and how it works, is in the scene where he meets this little boy um, and they and the swimming pool there is empty. And so they pretend to swim across it. And the boy's saying, well, it doesn't really count, though, does it? Uh, and uh, Ned says, well, if I, I find that if I pretend in something, uh, pretend something uh, strongly enough, then it is real. And the, the, we, we see just how, um, how far that goes a, a few moments later when he leaves and he hears the sound of the boy jumping on the uh, diving board. And he comes rushing back to save him because he thought the boy was going to dive in. And the boy looks at him puzzled and says, well, but the swimming pool is empty. Right? Uh, as if Ned really had convinced himself that there was water there. And I think we see this um, happen. Uh, in, in one of the things that in, in the story uh, that, that makes it so odd is that we don't really know what time of year it is. It seems to go from summer to fall in the space of an yeah. afternoon. Uh, and the movie has some of that too, right? Trying to identify exactly when this is uh, it gets difficult, uh, and that is, is part of the you know this, this weird delusion and that, that Ned is in, or the whole Twilight Zoney aspect of the film. Because I don't th- think either the story or the film we could ca- qualify as realism. It's not. It, the, I, even the Wikipedia page calls it surreal drama. I'm not sure if I would say it's yeah. surreal. I, I, I think it the Twilight Zone kind of view is probably the more accurate interpretation because it feels like a, a twilight zone episode you know a person who sees the world one way and comes to the end and it's all either a delusion or he's literally lived his whole life through this sequence of events we it, it's either one is a possible interpretation i don't know which one is necessarily yeah. accurate it could be both well yeah because we though we do get a revelation as to you were wrong about your life yeah. uh the, the the reality of all of the events that we're seeing, um, you, 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 I think um, it, Anne Enright in her uh, uh, reading of the, um, of, of the story uh, on the, the New Yorker podcast is correct that it's not a story where you can actually ask, did this really happen or did it not? It's not one of the, you can't come or, or what really happened is not really the issue, even though it, there's still manifestations of delusion. And I think one of the... Uh, the moments which I think which became clear to me on a, on a subsequent viewing of the film, uh, not on the not the first time when uh, you know the, the big reveal at the end was uh, was something of a surprise, uh, though it clearly was going somewhere dark, uh, is the the scene with the horse. Oh, I love the horse. <laughs> it, it's it's a it's a lovely scene, right? Um, but the scene with the horse. So he challenges a horse to a race, and they run together, and it's. It's a lovely it, moment. It's it, but, not just that. And just I'm sorry, I gotta say this. It's not that it's just lovely. It's it's very much almost like a fantasy because it's. I believe the horse yes. is the moment after he's he's had his confrontation with the the former friend's mother, exactly. and he's really really exactly. sad. And then all of a sudden he sees this horse because he's having this weird vision with the horse, and then he sees the horse for real. And it's almost like they're speaking to each other. And he looks at the horse, and the horse, like, bucks or something. And then he's like, ah, we're going to have a run. And it's this very carefree, childish, like, almost like a Disney moment. Yeah, and that's the th- that's exactly the, the thing. Because um, he's had his first unpleasant run-in, right? Uh, un- uh, hard reality has impinged itself upon his delusion. And he's so he's still feeling the, the effects of that. And then we get... Uh, you know the, the camera go into his eyes. He's he's yeah. He has this vision of a horse, and then we see that horse. And based on what we uh, see later, uh, we have every reason to doubt the reality of that horse. That uh, this is him, uh, you know, reestablishing the 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 glorious illusion of himself as uh, a splendid and noble man uh, as he says later uh and uh having just been confronted with his failings he erases that with the vision of the horse which he can't do later when he is being almost accosted with a reality whether or not it's actual reality or 
the reality trying to encroach in it's its own delusion but it's something he can't do later i mean he can't the for example yeah. when he goes to that party at which he's not even invited he just stumbles in and just decides i'm just gonna hang out here in my bathing suit at this high class party um because I'm Ned Merrill and I deserve to. Right, right. Never ask. I'm of this class of people that I'm of this. And he even says that he doesn't like these people. They're not even on our Christmas list. And he's talking to a young Joan right, Rivers. Right, who also did not much care for working with Burt Lancaster, by the way. <laughs> apparently, uh, many difficulties. Uh, apparently, Burt Lancaster wanted everything a certain way. And so it took her like seven takes to do what amounts to like eight, eight words of dialogue. <laughs> But, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it. And, you know, he's trying to convince her in a beautiful mirror of the moment when he convinces Julie to go with him. He's trying to convince her the same way. He does this again and again and again. He, he, I believe he does it with his ex-mistress as well, where he says, come with me. Um, and she's like, you're crazy. What are you talking about? Uh, and Joan Rivers seems like she's leaning towards it, right? She seems like she's like, oh, this guy's kind of intriguing. He's weird, but he's adventuresome. He's not like these stiffs. And then somebody pulls her aside. And whispers to her, and I, we don't know what he whispers, but we know that whatever it is he's whispering, not gonna, it's not gonna involve her going with Ned. Um, well, yeah, I think we're, uh, the implication is that she's getting this, she's finding out what the story is about right, this guy. Right, which is what we learn, I think, very explicitly when he's with his ex-mistress, and she, and we learn the real nitty-gritty dirtiness of his womanizing. There and also the uh, the other things we found out too is that he's lost his job, uh, he's sure. uh, you know, bankrupt, the uh, you know the uh, he's, he's divorced, the uh, you know he has um, you know he has lost everything. Even his daughters that that scene at the public pool, the public pool by the way, the the where they say how do you like our water, right? Um, yeah. He's swimming among the masses, quite literally. That it's a pool teeming with people. He can't actually swim there. He's just kind of stumbling through the mass and they say you know how do you like our water and we learn from them how his daughters may have actually viewed him or at least what they say is how they viewed him and they thought of him as a joke and in fact i think by the time we get to maybe the two-thirds point of the film he does start to become a bit of a joke uh he is a character who who thinks too highly of himself he's uh, I think someone suggested that this is a narrative that's very similar to Narcissus. Um, you know, yeah. that this this character who thinks so highly of himself falling so far down, not because uh, he's literally falling, but because the world around him has leave, is leaving him behind and he can't admit that he needs to change. Uh, and he doesn't. He doesn't. He, he's... He un except maybe in the final even in the final moment maybe not because for some reason he thinks he can just bang his way through the door. Um, well, yeah, I think we there it, it we're seeing the total collapse yeah. because now the I mean his his delusion is destroyed by reality. Yeah. It, there's nothing he can maintain there anymore, but he has no he has nowhere to go right. Uh, the uh, all he had left was this illusion. Um, and it's now gone. Yeah, yeah. And I did that that ending scene since we're on it again. Um, I don't know. There was something about the the gate when he comes to the gate. And it's overgrown. That we and that's a really beautiful shot. I think where we we see how far he's yeah. fallen down because um, he's suddenly entering what is supposed to be his home, the last stop, and yet we can tell immediately it's not going to be what he said. And I think that becomes clear, you know, as you mentioned earlier, right when he's with his ex mistress. Uh, he's recounting events that either didn't happen or they happened so long ago that his perception of them is not the same perception she has. She has a very different view of, of their time together. And she even says at one point, right, she screams at him like, I hated all of it. I didn't love it. I was faking it all of this time, uh, which is a reversal, but maybe we'll come back to that later. Uh, but that scene with the gate, he, he comes to the gate and he puts his hands on it and then he pulls away and it's covered in... I'm guessing rust, um, yes. but it felt almost like uh, like being covered in blood. Yeah, I, it certainly. I hesitated at, at that moment too, um, and uh, I mean, you know, so he is he's being taken apart. Right, it felt like you know that we're seeing the wounds finally sort of split open, um, and that seemed almost symbolic of that that moment. Um, but so I'm glad I, I wasn't the only one that thought that in that moment. Um, so cool. Um, yeah. Uh, can we go back to the little boy again? Yep. 
Okay, so because you'd mentioned the little boy, and you're right that that he has the the fantasies, right? The the water and all of that stuff. But I thought was really interesting is um, the little boy is is another moment where we I can't remember if it's the first, but it it may be a moment when we learn about his his debt nature, his his constantly taking from other people, um, and it's not necessarily just money. It's he takes from other people and says he's going to pay back somehow, yes. but he never does, right? Um, and and he's endlessly making promises that uh, that he will never uh, uphold. He will never uphold. Yeah, yeah. He'll never keep. And the and the the boy seemed it was so. Uh, we get to much later where he like owes townspeople lots of money, and there's even that moment with the the two very rich people who say they're not going to give him any money, and he gets upset, right, because he. He just wanted to say hi, and he wanted to put down a thousand dollars for his table, which we realize later he doesn't have money for. Um, and uh, their response is, "Oh, he's going to ask us for money. We are not going to give him a damn thing." And then they tell him that to his face, and he says, "I don't recall ever asking you for anything." And then he leaves. He goes and swims, and he leaves, and he seems deeply offended by that moment. And then, of course, they cross his name off of the the list. Um, but with the boy, we see that as well because. Right, he comes up to the boy, and the boy's like, "Well, I've got this lemonade," and he's like, "Well, can I have one?" And he's like, "It's ten cents." He's like, "Well, I owe you." Uh, and we know from later on when he gets to the public pool that when he says he owe, he's going to owe someone, he's not going to pay them back, whether whether because he just takes and doesn't give back, or because, as we learn, as you mentioned, right, that he has lost his job, he's incapable of it, but yet he's continuing to engage in behavior that is from his past where he just takes things and claims he's going to pay it back and maybe used to, but doesn't anymore. Well, yeah. I mean, it could be, uh, um, both could be true. He, he, we know that we can see that he is no longer capable of paying anything. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, if he's, well, but though, though presumably he would be able to, you know, um, he, he physically can't give five cents cause he's wearing a bathing suit. True. Uh, but he is, uh, also, yeah, he cannot pay his debts, but also this seems to be part of who he is in that whether it's promising to, um, give, uh, uh, a, a young boy a few cents for his lemonade, pay back somebody 50 cents for uh, getting him into a public pool, or um, hiring someone to be a babysitter, inviting somebody over to uh, play on a skating rink. Um, these are all things that are impossible for him to uh, make good on, but he probably has never made good on. Uh, that uh, he, You're right, he's always taking... Uh, as is his right from his perspective uh, and never giving back always promising to give back but uh, the, the that future never comes uh, the, and, and then this actually um, there was a uh, I thought an interesting uh, piece on it in uh, the, the focus poll I think it was uh, that talks about the I mean this is a film that had where uh, there is no future, right? He's never going to get there. And even the past is, uh, although, you know, we know that he has lost things. Um, you know, where was Ned five minutes before this movie began? We don't right? know. Uh, yeah. We don't know, right? He just emerges from the woods in that bathing suit. Uh, and, you know, and beginning this, the, you know, the, the film as parable begins at that moment. Yeah, beginning, of course, the, the opening of the film is, uh, it's implied that he's been walking through the woods, experiencing, but we never see him, right? The camera's doing the walking, um, which I thought was an interesting, because it's so different from what the rest of the film is, right? We start with this, this um, oh gosh, what's the, 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 the composer's name? Hamlish? Marvin Hamlish. Yeah. yeah. I believe this was um, his first score. His first score, and of course, he's, he became a very accomplished composer, uh, one of very few to have as many awards as he has had at any given time. Um, uh, we have this very beautiful theme that repeats and repeats, but here it's it's very positive and, and uh, upbeat because he's walking through the woods and we see deer and rabbits and all of these beautiful creatures and life um, almost... Uh, almost as though in that moment it's sort of like a birth, right? He's being birthed into this this scene with his friends from the bowels of nature, um, and then we get to the end, right? Which I mean, you could almost make the argument that this is following his cycle of life up to the moment at which he would die. Yeah, the I think what what complicates that is the um, I mean, there's that 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 birthing thing. I th- think you're right, but at the same time, the very first images that we see of nature. Um, in that the, those opening seconds are of withered leaves, right? We uh, we get fall immediately, 
and then we get what looks like summer. Well, from and death then, to life. <laughs> yeah, and then we go back and forth. Uh, so the what we keep seeing in the film is him seeing the world as summer. Right. Whereas a, a reality of fall is constantly cracking that illusion, right? The, 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 why has that tree lost its leaves so soon? Uh, the, uh, he, he, he's, these things that, that disturb that, um, that, that perspective. And that is established right from the beginning. So I guess the, though we, we end with that, that tremendous thunderstorm, and and we see all the leaves that have accumulated in the uh, the abandoned tennis court of, of his house. Um, I guess what I saw in as far as the the, the nat- nature imagery in the film was rather than a movement from say spring summer to fall, uh, a constant collision between summer and fall uh, that both always present. Uh, he choosing to see one. Whereas the reality was something else. And you do get that, by the way, in that final scene, because uh, the very last shot of the film of the thunderstorm shows sunlight coming in, Mm. which I don't know if that was intentional. It could just very well be like they needed to film it and like they they couldn't do anything. (laughs) They just had a detail that I missed. Yeah. But there is, you can see little bits of, of sunlight coming in from the left hand. Mm. Um, uh, now I, it is interesting, I think, because I, I I do think the film is following cycles of life, but I think on so many levels it's about a character who is facing death in so many different ways and doesn't want to admit that that's coming. I mean, even from the beginning, right, We that the dialogue in that scene, it's among a bunch of friends, but he's meeting all his friends who are getting old, they're getting poofy around the midsection, they're... You know, they, they smoke too much as kids, but he's, you know, he's always been the same. He's just swimming and swimming all the time, swimming for miles, and he's just an active man playing off his youth while he's being faced with death all around him because his friends are going to die. And he every time he sees friends, they look so much older than him until he gets closer to the end. Um, I, and I think that's part of what's happening in the film is we're seeing a character who is being faced with his own mortality uh and like so many people, refusing to admit it, even at his tender age. Um, I, and so that may be, I think, partly why you keep seeing that, that that collision between summer and winter, these these two... Well, I mean, technically it should be spring, but summer, whatever. Uh, spring and winter, these two, two, two seasons we symbolically link with life and death anyway. Um, that collision constantly happening. And I think when you brought up the ash tree, which was I thought was so fascinating, because... I saw this happening, these, these death and life images being put up against each other. But when we get to the ash tree, it's a deception, right? Because what is the, the guy tells us, oh, that's an ash tree. It's, it's the first to get leaves and it's the first to die, right? Or not die, it's the first to lose them, right? If the tree's not yeah. actually dead, it's a deception. It's just, it's already going through fall while the other trees are kind of still sticking around. And, and it seems like that is sort of that example of the, 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 a sort of metaphor for those that don't live nearly as long as Ned has, uh, the ones who die younger, right? They, they're the first to bloom and the first to die, and he's one who does not want to. He wants to bloom forever, and can't. Yeah, I have to. I confess that I I, I read that differently. In oh. that uh, the the deception is uh, is is his, right? That uh, the um, he sees the tree as a deception. He sees it as wrong. It should not have lost its leaves. Uh, and he's told, well, no, it's, that's correct. It has lost its leaves because these are the first, it's the first to lose its leaves in the fall, i.e. it's fall. Uh, whereas he chooses to see that as a lie because no, it's summer. Nothing could have lost its leaves yet. Interesting. Uh, okay. And, uh, yeah, so I guess it's, I guess it, 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 it we're, we're sort of reading the film in, um, in, in, in two different ways. Uh, I, I do, um, I, I guess for me, what, what I'm seeing is, is primarily this, um, uh, this, this, this parable of, um, um, of, 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 of patriarchal privilege under collapse. I think that's there too, for sure. Yeah. So I, I don't think you're wrong there. I think, I think that's, it is such an interesting film in that respect because it, yeah, it so clearly just rips him to tiny pieces. This privileged man who takes advantage and slowly being deconstructed and torn to pieces, um, I mean that that scene with the at the public pool is beautiful in in how confrontational it is. I mean it's 
next to the ex-mistress is possibly the most confrontational scene in the whole film where they're well, they're they're basically ripping him to pieces uh, with the exception of the one man who's trying to be nice because it seems like he feels pity uh, but then finally hits him with the brutal truth when yeah. uh, the uh, you know Ned is is becoming t- is lashing out at at, uh, at his wife uh, at his wife yeah uh, and and where we get the you know one the truth of the daughters right because that's one of the other lies he's been you know he's been like he tells the little kid boy my kids really think uh, that uh, you know I'm I'm just about it they respect right? me because I'm yeah. their father they respect me he repeats yes that. yeah. Yeah, because I'm their father. Not because of you know, because of who you know, just because of my status, right? Not because of uh, that I've earned that respect. And uh, but the, the, the those two daughters that uh, you know we hear are uh, all grown up in the scene in one scene. And then we're told, oh, they need babysitters in the next, and then they're grown up again. And then oh, come over and play with my daughters. He says to the to this little boy who was about ten. Right, and he says uh, they're about the same age as you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, until you know, so we we have no way of knowing how old they really are until we hear that okay, um, there's they hang out at a bar. And uh, where they uh, mock their father, and there's been some kind of they've been involved in a car accident that had to get hushed up. So they're they're clearly um, uh, you know uh, much closer to adulthood um, than uh, than he believes they are in some scenes. Yeah, that's very true. So, uh, well, we kind of got to move on because uh, we're getting close to an hour, and unfortunately. As much as there is more, there's more to talk about for this film. Uh, it's really rich, uh, I yeah. think, and I do recommend folks that uh, if you have listened and you hadn't watched the film yet, you should go watch it. And uh, there, there are a number of ways you can watch it online uh, legally. I should mention, uh, you know, iTunes and all those kinds of places. Uh, I believe iTunes had it, but also uh, Vudu and Google Play and stuff. So do go watch it. But uh, now is the moment when we got to announce what our next film is going to be, David. And I wanted to play a game with you. Okay. Uh, the only thing that you know at this point is that our next film was a blockbuster success. Okay. Uh, but that is the only detail I'm giving you. You get to have 20 questions to figure out what the movie is. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> right. And so these are just yes or no questions. They could be yes or no or maybe like... Okay. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So have All right. Uh, um, uh, was I released after 1950? Yes. Uh, after 1970? Yes. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, before 1990? No. Oh, so we're looking at something quite recent then. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, in the 2000s? No. So in the 90s then? Yes. I believe that's... How many questions am I up I to here? I think that's five. Okay, so Blockbuster in the 1990s. Um, d- uh, did it win Best Picture? No. Did it win some Academy Awards? Yes. Okay. Um, so, by, so blockbuster. Hmm. Uh, was it directed by Steven Spielberg? Yes. Nineties. All right. Um, <laughs> the color purple. Nope. Uh, if it didn't win Best Picture, then that could also mean um, uh, Saving Private Ryan. Nope. You have ten, ten left. Ten left uh, for Spielberg films in the 90s. I'm going to try to do this without, uh, just drawing from memory then. Uh, and one that would have, um, hmm. But in the 90s. In the 90s. Yeah, that's good, because most of the Spielberg films I can think of in the 90s were not that great. Um, that, that would have been... Uh, well, oh, well, hi. You, well, you can it, think of it. Come on, David. Well, it's not Jurassic Park, is it? Yes. Oh well, there we go. Okay, because I was thinking, well, what's, there's a. I was trying to think of a good one. Okay, very interesting. That's going to be a bit of a shift. Yeah, I. I uh, well, there are a number of reasons I picked this film. Uh, one is uh, Jurassic World is coming out next month, which is, mm-hmm. or rather, this month when this releases, it'll be this month. Uh, it comes out, I think, on the twelfth of June. Uh, this episode, the episode we'll do on Jurassic Park, will come out uh, uh, basically like at the first of July. Um, I wanted to do it for that reason because, well, Jurassic World looks ridiculous. Uh, but I thought Jurassic Park was actually a rather exceptional film for what it was, and I think it's a film we should talk about, uh, and we're unlikely to talk about it on Skiffy and Fanny anytime soon, so why not talk about it here? 
Uh, well, that makes sense. In fact, we we just watched it the other week. That was uh, Margot's choice for Mother's Day. Oh, that's sweet. That's sweet. Um, it's uh, it's a great film. It's memorable. It's obviously wildly influential. Uh, it also is a film that uh, not everybody liked. Apparently, Jonathan Rosenbaum at Chicago Reader said there's more soul to be found in any Kong close-up than in this film's overplayed reactions, which I thought is amusing. Um, and I think we'll just have we'll have a lot of fun kind of looking at this film, both as we've been doing with other films where we're kind of more analytical, but also treating this film in a very different way. Because it is a blockbuster, it's a very different kind of film creation. Uh, there's obviously going to be much more attention on things like the visuals, right, and creating a visual landscape versus some of the films where the visuals are important, but they're not intended to be like spectacular visuals, like giant dinosaurs and stuff. Um, and I think that'll be interesting to kind of test our critical faculties on something like Jurassic Park, like a blockbuster. Also, it's sci-fi, and I like it. So, <laughs> Well, and most importantly, dinosaurs. Freaking dinosaurs. Yeah, so that'll be the next film we're going to watch. Uh, there are a number of ways you can view it yourself. Uh, if you don't have it on DVD or Blu-ray yet, I mean, that's just sad. Uh, but you should have it on one of those formats. Or you can go to like Google Play, Vudu, Amazon, and iTunes. They all have uh, rental versions and uh digital purchases of some kind uh some of them in hd some of them not uh and they range from anywhere between 2.99 and 14.99 depending on where you go so there are a number of ways you can watch it if you want to watch it ahead of time although to be honest if you just have cable that's probably going to play at some point in the next month true enough yeah so uh well awesome so on that note david uh, we should close this out and uh say adieu adieu <laughs> all right take care, everybody bye bye